0: Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin, with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me,
1: Aaron Gash-Burnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany.
0: Welcome back to Berlin Side Out, the new podcast on international politics about how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany, in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron Gash-Burnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. Now, last episode, we heard that liberal democracy is being challenged after years on cruise control, and that new efforts are needed to defend it and to renew or make good on its promise. And this effort to renew liberal democracy, as well as to renew its... attractiveness around the world to make sure that it can not only survive but actually thrive is the focus of the two events that we organized in Berlin and Prague in October with a stellar cast of guests from across Europe and uh, across the Atlantic to discuss exactly that isn't it Aaron?
1: That's right, Ben. And as we heard from our guests in part one uh, this week of our two-parter on defending, renewing, and spreading liberal democracy, there's some challenges uh, that come with that. One of those challenges is the question of whether we have taken liberal democracy for granted uh, and all of the benefits that uh, come with it. Is liberal democracy still an attractive model worth spreading? That is a central question that we tackled in Berlin and Prague and our guests in the next panel that we recorded in Prague that you're about to listen to would certainly say yes, although it does require people who live in liberal democracies not to take it for granted, to take some inspiration from the Ukrainians in particular, who are fighting and dying for the chance to uh, have uh, and continue that model in a secure, prosperous society, in an insecure, uh, prosperous
0: Europe. And it also requires people in liberal democracies around the world to not only recognize that but to make good as you said before on the promise of liberal democracy to renew our societies renew our political and economic arrangements in a way that takes more people with us on this journey to show that liberal democracy is not only morally a better system but materially a better system that actually has tangible benefits for the people who live in free societies and that takes some doing it takes a restoration of our commitment to the performance and living up to those values day by day in the way that ukrainians are showing us how to do in the most extreme circumstances but we also need to carry it through in the everyday performance of our lives. Right. And
1: spreading liberal democracy, I think in that way, could be taken to mean spreading liberal democracy is both within liberal democracies itself to ensure that people still are reminded of why this model uh, actually is attractive and to really deliver results for those same people. And then as well to other um, places in the world, for example, who want that chance.
0: That's right. While learning the lessons from how that's been so badly done in the past through the neoconservative, the misadventures in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. And that's, that was a key at point, right? democracy at gunpoint. And exactly that's a key point of difference from the kind of approach we've been taking, which is loosely structured around what we call neo idealism, which you can find more about in episode four, which seeks to defend democracy where it's threatened, seeks to give it a chance to thrive and to become that attractive beacon that it could be without imposing it, as you said, Aaron, on those who don't want it. So it's about shoring up the core of the liberal democratic world, but also giving the chance to spread it, giving a chance to anyone around the world who wants to live in a free society to see why they should and how they
1: might. Exactly, and we think that this uh, particular conversation is so critical, particularly for the rest of the discussions we'll be having this entire season, that it, we have divided this up into two parts, this important discussion. So joining us uh, for part two of uh, Defending, Renewing and Spreading Liberal Democracy is Alexandra Matvichuk. She is a human rights lawyer and and head of the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine. That center was awarded the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. Also joining us in Prague were Jeff Gedman, the co-founder of American Purpose and the current acting president and CEO of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, as well as James Nixie, the head of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. Let's listen in. We're talking about spreading liberal democracy. Are liberal democracies still that beacon of hope and prosperity for other countries to try and emulate? Should we still try and promote and spread liberal democracy, particularly at a time when it feels like uh, we're also uh, struggling at home a little bit with questions of our own prosperity? So getting straight into this, should this still be a goal of ours and why? Let's begin with the existential question.
2: Maybe I will start with that point that the problem of modern world, not only in that fact that in authoritarian countries the space of freedom is shrinking to the size of the prison cell. The problem is that even in well-developed democracies, the political forces are gaining weight, who start openly putting into doubt the principle of universal declaration of human rights. And there is a clear reason for such a things, because after the Second World War, the generation who experienced this tragedy were turned to another generations, and these generations inherited the democracy, rule of law, and freedom from their parents. They have never fought for them in well developed democracies. They start to behave themselves not like a bearers of these values, but like a consumers of these values. They take it for granted, and that is why they don't understand their real meaning, and this lead to a situation that. Uh, this uh, kind of people start very easily exchange their freedom for economical benefits, for illusion of safety, and even more for their own comfort. So, this is something which we have to put as an urgent problem because you can't spread democracy if you are not bear of this value
0: that cuts right to the chase the problems at the heart of liberal democracy indeed do we still actually believe in our system do we perform it in a sufficient way james
3: well of course we don't a friend of mine arkady moshe is in finland he uh, he, he said he said we behave like absolute bastards but you, you spoke about beacons of hope in your introduction and uh, yeah that's still got to be true i mean i know it's relentless i know that i, I know that you know you we can all wake up in I wake up in bed one morning and think, God, it's, especially in the events of the last week in Israel and Gaza, but really since... And not just since 2022, February, but you know, pr- pretty much all century, it's, be, it's been rough. You have to, if, you, if you telescope it out for a bit, though, of course, you'd pres- presumably, unless you live in specific places in the world, you'd probably prefer to live in this century than the last and the last century than the one before. It doesn't always look like it because we're focused in on a specific time and place and our lifespans are relatively short. But I think if you do broaden it out, actually, there is, there is reason for hope in progress.
1: I, I would like to actually ask you about the, what something you said about, um, you know, we thought that Western liberal values would be exported. And in fact, uh, some of uh, it, it, you know, there's been
0: a reverse that's actually happened in many cases. Well, um, I mean, Aaron, this is Vandal Durch Handel in the German example, change through trade. But who got changed? It was Germany. Well, exactly. We became less committed,
1: I think, to those values in, in, in favor of short term commercial interests. And that had a huge price when it came. Uh, a time to, especially to divest ourselves out of, out of Russian energy. But what I would uh, like to ask on this particular point is, are we uh, perhaps too comfortable um, in our own societies about thinking of things like corruption or thing or things that happen somewhere else? And one of the biggest examples of this, for example, uh, Manuel Schleswig in, in Germany literally set up a fake NGO, uh, environmental NGO to promote Nord Stream 2. In my view, this is absolutely naked corruption, but the C word was never used in a lot of German newspapers. Should this be, should this be something that we are more comfortable using also in our own advanced democracies? The C word, should we basically say corruption? Not, not that C word, James.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not that bad. Um, crikey, uh, I'll never get invited back. Uh, as a friend of mine put it in the, in the anti-corruption business, you know, uh, we don't like corruption, but we kind of like the money, right? And, of course, you're talking to a Brit here, and the Brits, I think, have been first and foremost as far as the intake of illicit funds, especially from Eurasia, not just from Eurasia, uh, for want of a better term, but not just Russia. It includes Ukraine, actually. It includes, it includes Kazakhstan. You know all this, Azerbaijan, etc. cetera. Um, and, of course, you know, it's been done legally because the, because the legal loopholes were so... Or, or the legal allowances were so wide you could drive a bus through them. And uh, it, there were so many lobby groups, so many important... Uh, areas of society, so many disciplines, not least the corporate world, but also I think the diplomatic world, which allowed that to happen against the wishes of more independent voices. And so we find ourselves where, actually, we—we we, I mean, there is a difference, between, as you know, between tax evasion and tax avoidance. I mean, even I, as I pay, my, as I pay into my pension, you know, that is a form of tax avoidance, because I'm not paying tax upon it. But at some point, that leads into actually some sort of um, tax evasion which is ultimately corruption so and and, uh, just one final thing to say is because in my country leads the world on offshoreization and so i mean and that is something that i I think that you know no party is really gonna is gonna get to grips with in in my country because it's just so profitable
0: we can point to the particular examples in many of our countries as you've just highlighted for the uk but jeff what's what's the source of this this malaise in our own democracy How, how do we fix it and how does it relate to spreading liberal democracy?
4: So, Benjamin, it, it does relate spreading democracy because we have a lot to fix, and I think we have to be self, self-critical and self-aware. If you take the United States, if Donald Trump, a populist, irresponsible, demagogic, if he disappeared today, it's, uh, it's my view that Trumpism does not disappear. I think the problem is wider and deeper.
1: We see other candidates in that race, too, who...
4: Well, absolutely. No, a- absolutely. If you go back to, uh, you ask Benjamin, what's the source of the malaise? And again, each country varies, but in the United States, if you go back to 2016, the two candidates that did exceptionally well in the primaries were Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And then people say to me, well, they have nothing in common. But they were the two candidates running against the establishment, the status quo, Washington, Wall Street. And I think that was a sign that something was going wrong in the mainstream of American politics. In fact, if you go back before Trump, you can see that voter ties to both mainstream parties were loosening in the United States. There was erosion of trust, uh, diminishing faith in elected representatives, and as I said, in shorthand, Washington and Wall Street. So number one, we've got lots to fix. And then number two, my view, if we're talking in this conversation about spreading liberal democracies, so you have to defend it, you have to renew it, and if indeed we want to spread it, I think it's a good idea actually. Uh, I think the yearning for freedom is universal, but we know from our own countries that liberal democracy is exceptionally hard and demanding. It takes institutions, and also habits, and values, and behaviors, and that takes us to Iraq, and Afghanistan, and any number of other challenges.
0: Well, this exactly is demanding. It's a task that is performed. We're in the city of Vaclav Havel, who talked about democracy as a task, Europe as a task, and saw liberalism as that task of performance there. And Alexandra, I mean, this is precisely, I think, what you were getting at when you said that the current inheritors of those liberal and democratic values don't seem to be upholding them in such a regular way. But at the same time, we see Ukrainians striving and fighting for that, and we saw that in the revolution of dignity as well. So why is it that even despite these imperfections, Ukrainians are still giving their lives, making the ultimate sacrifice to have the chance for that?
2: You're totally right. Nine years ago, Ukrainians, millions of Ukrainians, stood up their voice against corrupt authoritarian government, and they peacefully demonstrated in fighting just for a chance to build a country where the rights of everybody body are protected, government is accountable, judiciary is independent, and police do not beat students who are peacefully demonstrated, and we pay a high price for this uh, chance. Oh, more than 100 protesters were killed, uh, unarmed, in the center of uh, the Kiev, and then authoritarian regime collapsed and ukraine obtained a chance for the quick democratization and uh, transformation of the society and in order to stop us on this way putin started this war of aggression years ago because this russian war against ukraine started not in february 2022 but in february 2014 when Ukraine obtained this chance and Russia occupied Crimea, part of Lugansk and Donetsk regions, and last year extended this war to the large-scale invasion because Putin is not afraid of NATO. Putin is afraid of the idea of freedom which came closer to his own border. This is very important because in this regard, this is not just a war between two states. This is a war between two systems, authoritarianism and democracy. And with this war, Putin attempts not just to punish Ukrainians for our democratic choice which we made nine years ago. He also attempts to convince the whole world that democracy, rule of law and human rights are fake values. Because they couldn't protect anyone in this war. And we must to respond something to this claim. We have to demonstrate with joint efforts of international uh, community that It's wrong that democracy is successful and can win worse.
0: The success is definitely part of it, but also understanding... Um, that that liberal values aren't a fake. This is not just a cynical trick, which is something we hear a lot, actually, from the people in the left in Germany, uh, the famous German intellectuals of TV shows. But we've seen that in the US, and we've seen it in all European countries, I think, really. Um, And, Jeff, where did liberalism lose its way in that regard? And how how did we leave ourselves open to that
4: charge? So somehow we we find ourselves in this moment where what we used to call, let's still call it, the broad, vital center is shrinking... Uh, extremes is where one finds the energy in American politics, left and right, and in particular right now on the right. And so I'll go back to a point I made earlier. We've witnessed an erosion of trust in, well, counted up, you know, uh, voters and their elected representatives, uh, women and men, Catholics in the church, uh, consumers in capitalism. It's a confluence of a number of things. I can't put, point to one single moment or item but liberal democracy works because of the institutions but because of trust it's a trust based system somehow that's been coming unglued in the united states
0: james how do you see that coming unglued in the uk or do you
3: i think there's been slow progress um it i have to say um and i, I really uh, it makes me feel cold to say this in front of alexandra but but probably the war helped so, in a sense, the, there was plenty of legislation. In fact, I mean, I remember Liz Truss saying in the institute where I work at that, uh, that Britain had some of the best legislation in the world but you can have all the legislation if you want if you don't have the enforcement and we have not put the resources necessary uh, behind that to check on shell companies or as i say people effectively avoiding tax or bringing dirty money in and the questions weren't asked a lucky rich guy in a casino beats a hell out of a, rush- a lucky poor guy any day of a week so if you've got the money you're always going to be able to use it either to curry favor to curry influence to get friends uh, as i as as saying in english lords on boards somebody somewhere i think is a, it's a human nature that somebody's always going to be bought obviously Everyone's got these markers at points in history when we think there was a turning. People often point to Munich or the Maidan or et cetera, et cetera. And that makes sense to me. But one for me is when Putin, I think he gave an interview to the Financial Times, and he said liberalism is dead. Mm-hmm. And nobody called him out on that. That was something that should have been a, 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 real, a real turning point in people's minds. And people there should have been a policy change from that. But of course, we just, because it was more ethereal then we didn't, we just didn't, we let it go.
0: Right, but this came at the time when, after the 2008 financial crisis, an increasing number of people started to see that neoliberal economics was not serving their needs. They didn't feel that tangible hope of progress that is actually supposed to be at the heart of liberal democracies. Moreover, after the huge error in invading Iraq and the, the death and destruction that that wreaked, it also severely damaged the reputation of some of the core countries of Western liberal democracies. And as you say, I think you're totally right that Ukrainians have given us the wake-up call. They've given us the reminder that this is not something you can afford to be cynical about. When it's threatened, you have to stand up and fight for it. And that, that has been something I think the, the discourse, for example, around Ukrainians needing to be grateful is totally wrong-headed. It's the other way around. We have every gratitude to pay to Ukrainians because you've been the ones who've actually stood and called out that nonsense and stood up. How, how is that seen in Ukraine?
2: I think that in Ukraine and in the world, one of the main questions is how we people who live in 21st century will define the human beings, their lives, their freedom, and their human dignity. Can we rely on the law or just nuclear weapons matter? The answer to this question will define not just future in Ukraine, but future of the entire world. Because what Russia tried to impose and and spread uh, was the narrative that if you are state with a strong military potential and nuclear weapon, you can break international order, you can dictate its rule to entire international community and even forcibly change the internationally recognized borders. And if Putin succeed, it will encourage authoritarian leaders in other parts of the world to do the same. International UN system doesn't work anymore. And this means that democratic governments will be forced to invest their money not in education, healthcare, culture, or business development, not in solving global problems like climate changes or social inequality, but in weapons. And we will witness the emergence of the numbers of nuclear states and new weapons of mass destruction if Russia succeeds and this scenario comes true we will found ourselves in a world which will be dangerous for everyone without any exception.
4: I agree entirely with Alexandra. Uh, ben ben when you said we had 2008 financial crisis, we've said that we had Iraq, Afghanistan, I mean also there, any number of things could one could mention. Remember Hillary Clinton's regrettable declaration about deplorables, I mean whatever one thinks, you're talking to voters. Voters matter in a democracy, actually. They're not deplorables. Um, And now we have Ukraine. And I think you, Alexander, are completely right. Of course it's about Ukraine. It's your fight, your fate, your future. But as you said, it's part of a larger civilizational structure. I believe China watches Ukraine very carefully, not because it cares about Ukraine or Russia, actually. I think China watches Ukraine very carefully because it wants to see how the West responds and whether the West can sustain itself for more than five or six minutes. And now we're at this crucial point where, if I may say, we didn't give you what you said you needed. You said you needed tanks, long-range missiles, and air power. And we didn't give it to you. And now we're fretting that maybe the counteroffensive isn't bearing the fruit we thought it would. I think we're at a critical moment for Ukraine, but I think in the next six or eight or 10 or 12 months, if we don't get the Russian forces out of this sovereign country, I think, as you suggested, it will be a brutal ending or Pause or frozen conflict for Ukraine, but I think it'll matter for anybody who cares about the future of liberal democracy. I think it will matter.
1: Yes, as you were saying, this is obviously you know Ukraine's fight, but it is I think also ours um, as well. That is uh, new idealism would certainly um, uh, hold that to say that Ukraine's fight is also our fight. It is not as a, it is not simply. Uh, a war between two countries as Alexander said, it is a struggle between two systems, which is part of what we're part of why, I think as you said, um, whatever Ukraine needs we have to be able to to, to give it right? Right,
0: and this is, I mean the neo-idealist leaders that we've seen, so Kaya Kalas uh, Gabriela Slansberg, Jan Lipavsky here in the Czech Republic, Petr Fiala in the Czech Republic. All of them have said at some point, this is our fight and that's also why we have to win it. And when President Zelensky was addressing the Congress last year, he said, exactly, this is the world of our grandchildren that we're building now. Will they live in a world safe for democracy or not? that is the stake of the
3: battle here, James, isn't it? What Russia would do next... You know, we, we, nobody thinks it's going to stop at the borders of Ukraine, much less uh, Donbass or, or something like that. So, so that, that, that should be pretty clear to one and all, especially with the evidence we've now got of, um, through the uh, through this century again. So, yeah, it, it, it is absolutely our fight. But I think we, ha- we all have problems in our respective roles of convincing people of that. People don't want to address the... They don't want to, just like they did, just like they didn't want to address the difficulty of a Russian problem in in the early 2000s or in the late 1990s. So they shoved it under the carpet. It's actually the same now. So they're saying to themselves, No, no, it's confined to Ukraine and you know, bad luck Ukraine. And I think the job that we all have is 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 doing this. And I say, I just feel bad saying it in front of Alexandra, but uh, but I, but I accept I
4: accept the essential trueness of it. May I add to that, um, from the U.S. perspective? Uh, we Americans, the Biden administration was clear from the beginning, as James noted, no troops on the ground, no pilots in the sky. Okay? And as I've suggested, we did not give Ukraine what it needed. But the other point, and I, I add this on to James's comments, as far as I know, the American president has not given one single speech telling Americans why it's in our national interest that Ukraine prevail. That matters.
0: It does. And this, I mean, Olaf Scholz is the same. He, victory is the hardest word for Scholz and Biden to actually say. So what is holding us back? Why are we afraid of victory? And that's something we've, we've written on at our institute in the past. Is it because of that lack of faith in our own system?
4: In my view, the first mistake was uh, we have never articulated our vision and our plans for the end game. Now, you mentioned the uh, prime minister of Estonia. Remember the prime minister of... Finland, who, when she was asked, what's the exit ramp? She said, it's easy when all Russian troops leave Ukraine.
1: And it was si- simple. Crystal,
4: crystal clear. The UN, the UN Charter's been violated. Everything that we care about has been violated. So the invading occupying forces that commit atrocities week after week should leave, must leave Ukraine. We've never, ever been clear about that. Once you're clear about that, you can be clear about resources allocations, division of labor, elements of a strategy, we've never been clear. Why have we never been clear? In my view, because we've been afraid of, ready, escalation. And that's been the card that Putin has played from the outset, Mm. escalation. So fear of escalation has led to incrementalism, which has led to the possibility of stalemate and a new frozen conflict.
1: You've brought up the issue of institutions. Um, number one, at how liberal democracy is also, uh, requires institutions, which take a long time to, to work on in that, but you've also referenced the, the UN Charter has been violated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and
0: Alexander said before, the UN system isn't working.
1: Yeah, And this this comes to our question. We do see um, a UN system that um, has, you know, even before Ukraine and uh, in Syria and in other cases, has been weaponized, essentially, by the Russians and um, by the Chinese, and yet there is a lot of obsession in Western countries, certainly in Germany. We, uh, um, you've referred to this, Ben, I think, as the restrictive comfort of, of legalism. Um, it's, it's illegal, therefore, we can't do anything. And yet, you know, the countries that are deciding whether it's legal or not are sitting on the Security Council with vetoes backed by authoritarian regimes. So, what is needed? Um, in, our in, in our international institutions in terms of reforms, and, or also even our own conceptions of it, should we be changing how we perceive those institutions?
0: Yeah, exactly. And Alexandra, I mean, do we need new institutions?
2: We need to start a cardinal reform of international system of peace and security. It's not work anymore, and it's become visible not only for people in Syria, people in Afghanistan, people in Sudan, people in Myanmar, but also people in well-developed democracies as well. And uh, it's become visible that your human rights guarantees and security depended not on international order but whether or not you live in a country with a strong military potential or your country is a par- part of powerful military bloc. And this is a very wrong development of uh, entire world. So. We must start this cardinal reform. This system was uh, created in last century by victorious states, and they provide in their architecture for some concrete countries' irrational privileges.
1: It remains rigged, essentially.
2: And... When I speak about cardinal reform, I don't speak about some uh, changes like uh, President Biden recently suggested to make. He told that we have to to make reform of Security Council and to include more countries uh, to this privileges club. And this is not cardinal reform, sorry. Uh, We have to base this international system of peace and security not on GDP or size of the country, but on human rights and freedom. And this is completely opposite.
0: Right, I mean, there's a clue in that as to why many countries around the world in the so-called global south, whatever we think of that term, are not enthusiastically rushing to defend the so-called rules-based international order because that rules-based order has been rigged against them. So the question I think we should be asking not is do we just blindly defend that rules-based order, but what are the rules we need? What are the rules we want? What are the institutions that can codify and enforce them? So how do we get there? I mean similarly Jeff to talking about the outcome of the war, you need the objective to set the strategy and define the means to get there, and that's what partly neo-idealism is about, is trying to come up with a way to do that. But what would be the building blocks, given all the problems that we've described? What are the the building blocks of getting to the objective and defining the strategy?
4: Here's one building block and then back to you in the round table for um uh, how to tackle some of these things. One building block is, and I'm now now building off of what you said, Alexandra, um, the war in Ukraine uh, has led to the what the emergence of a number of countries in Central and Eastern Europe who, who now have a kind of common operating picture, and that's Poland, and that's the Baltic states, and that's the Nordic nations, and it's the Czech Republic. Th- there's suddenly some sort of... Um, a cohesion there that wasn't quite there before, and there is work to be done with that. And then, Ben, you mentioned the Global South, which is a big topic. I just talked to a, a European diplomat who is back from Cairo who told me Friday, actually, uh, that uh, to find Egyptian conversation partners who are I- interested in Ukraine is almost impossible. Uh, this diplomat said to me, because the narrative is so strong and so set that this is America's war and a case of America instrumentalizing its allies in Europe. Well, whatever you do with that, I think in the global south, uh, there's lots to be done, and also narratives that have to be dr- addressed. I mean, it's not just a, a, a f- point of debating or supplying information. I think to build trust is going to take years and reverse narratives is going to be very hard. James, can we ask you to add on to that and jump in?
3: A couple of things, I think. First of of all, on the the Global South issue. Yeah, I agree, obviously, Ben, that the system has been rigged against for 50 years plus now.
0: Sorry, James, one second, because to come back on your historical long view that you said before, it is important to still emphasise that You know, the liberal international order may not have lived up to its own standards, but by historical standards, it was still the most liberal order we've ever had. Yet at the same time, we still need to fix it.
3: Absolutely. That's one point. Absolutely. But another is, is that many of the countries of the global south, we have to be honest and say that they are not democracies themselves, and therefore they actually are more comfortable in a more Russian conceptualization of international affairs than perhaps ours is not true for everybody of course it does depend i mean the kenyans are a wonderful exception as an example but ultimately in in many cases if they if they also share the russian view that longevity and power is everything or much then ultimately they're not going to they're not going to get on board with this so it comes back to your democracy point at the end of the day i can make a point about uh, the common operating picture as well but you've got something to say i can see
0: one one thing on that because this is something we talk about a lot and i think is really important is that neo-idealism has often said it's not going to be popular with the global South, And we say who do you mean when you talk about the global south if you're talking about authoritarian leaders there? Obviously, it's not going to be popular if you're talking about people who aspire to live in freedom and with human rights Maybe a different story
1: and the other question I think that comes into this is simply also a question of results So for example, what kind of results do we need in our own countries in our own democracies to renew our attractiveness? But what kind of results do we need to be able to demonstrate to actually say look this is still an attractive model
3: it's rough, isn't it? Because progress isn't linear and there are peaks and troughs and if you look at some countries and actually Jeff's and mine are pretty good examples where we've been through political rough times and social inequality is, and racial diversity still remain horrific problems. That said, I don't want to go overboard on it because I think there is a sin of moral equivalence and it does seem to me entirely clear that for all of our sins of which there are many then... There's no real comparison between the state of Russian repression and whatever problems that Jeff and and myself have in our own countries right now. I wouldn't want to go too far and self-flagellate too much.
0: Yeah, this is it. We do have legs to stand on. We can't beat ourselves up too much, while we have to recognise the extent of the problems we do have. And it's that false equivalence that has, I think, also driven a lot of the cynical... Uh, the cynical left in some of our countries who are dealing with that, who make the equivalence between Putin breaking
4: international law and the Kosovo intervention, for example. I think that's well said. Liberal democracy, even in times like these, has a magnificent story to tell. First of all, let's all remember and remind ourselves it's compared to what? And it's not a flow of people into (laughs) Vladimir Putin's Russia or Xi's China or to North Korea or Egypt, any of these grand authoritarian models. Uh, Also, we're here in the city of Vaclav Havel, who immediately after the Velvet Revolution told fellow Czechs and Slovaks, it's not a magic key, it's an open door, actually, to possibilities and the hard work. And the last thing I'd say, Ben, is um, results, and we need to deliver results. But but it's not as if today we're in this uh, difficult moment of, of challenge and turmoil across the West. But in the olden days, it was so perfect and glorious. And, you know, pick a time, pick a country, pick, pick my country, the United States. In, let's say, the 1960s, 1970s, we had Vietnam, we had Watergate, we had the assassination of President Kennedy, we had the assassination of a, of a civil rights leader named Martin Luther King Jr. The so good, even the good in the old days, days it there, was right? a struggle, wasn't it? It was always a struggle
0: this is exactly it, and getting a sense of perspective on those things, and also understanding how we deal with it. So I often say this about the European Union, they talk about polycrisis, multi-crisis, etc. So do you think it was easier in the 1940s? Do you think it was easier in the 1950s? Yet the sense of imagination to deal with that and transform those threats into opportunities, and that belief that we could do it was there in a different way than I think is now. And neo-idealism is in a way about trying to revive that, and revive those lost futures of the hope of progress.
1: And I would like to actually talk about opportunity a little bit because my question sometimes is uh, when we speak about Ukraine specifically, and when we speak about uh, increasing ties with Ukraine, whether that is um, accession to the EU of Ukraine or whether that is also NATO accession of Ukraine, we often speak about it in a few different terms. We speak about it as something that is necessary for the defense of democracy. We speak about it uh, in terms of also um, all of the different challenges that exist with Ukrainian accession specifically to the EU. But one conversation that I I don't feel that we're having enough of is uh, Ukrainian accession to the EU as an opportunity. If we really think, and, and to NATO as well, I mean, you know, a Ukraine in NATO would be one of the most experienced uh, military uh, forces anywhere in the alliance with a very, very clear sense of purpose, which it's showing very, very clearly right now. A Ukraine that is in the EU would obviously have massive opportunities in terms, of our, um, in terms of our economic and political integration. It has a lot to teach us. Are we speaking about uh, in involving Ukraine into our liberal Western systems enough when it, in terms of opportunity rather than simply you know, challenge and obligation?
3: Not even nearly enough. And I think if it's a sin of um, um, equivalence, there's also a sin of cynicism whereby people just, or, or inability to imagine or conceptualize. I suppose some people think that Ukraine is non-European in a faraway place. We all around this table know very differently. But it's very hard to get that message across to many ordinary people in my country, I know. Perhaps it's slightly easier the further east you go, but I'm sure it is. And, but that's, that's a question of you know, stratcoms and education, particularly education amongst the young, but whereby, of course, when we were children, we <laughs> were roughly the same age in our know, 40s, then, then I think we were, thought, we were taught pretty much that it was a, a faraway place, and of course it was behind the Iron Curtain. But now we, we really need to be teaching that, that actually this country, apart from due to its heroic credentials, geographically... Uh, geopolitically um, uh, strength of army-wise, as you say. The reasons are legion, but the problem is, is that too many people think it's just a step too far and, and it's too hard for them. And, there's a f- and, 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 they, and they say they support Ukraine because, of course, they see a Russian invasion, but they don't want to take that final leap
0: and this James is something you've talked you and I've talked about before is this is you know reasonable people being ever so reasonable about this and not pushing to the so-called extremes that some of us advocate for while not realizing that's actually a very risky strategy in itself and it sells everyone short but uh, Alexandra I want to come to you to this um when we think of human rights, and we think about the universal declaration of human rights and so on, it is a wonderful fundament and it, to have. But something we try and do with neo-idealism is to go a little bit further and say that actually probably the most crucial element is the right of citizens in free societies to a hopeful future and actually to recover this, this notion of progress. How would you relate that to the current struggle?
2: The future is unclear and unguaranteed. And as Ukrainians, uh, as the citizens of the country who are fighting just for a chance to have a future in this uh, Russian war against Ukraine, maybe I will emphasize on our joint responsibility, uh, regardless of that fact that we can't predict future, we have to do everything in our efforts to create such version of future which we want to live in and our children live in.
0: Well, exactly so. And we heard a wonderful quote from Václav Havel before, but also to turn to another statesman of this region, Leonard Mary, who said that politics is a factory for inventing the future. And so it's up to us to actually shape that in this this time. And I think an untold story of Ukraine at the moment is this is the frontier state of our future. It's not only somewhere that has shown the courage to, to fight for that despite having been rejected so many times by NATO, rejected by the European Union, pushed aside, told indeed that we're a faraway country somewhere else and not us. And sitting in Prague, that's a particularly resonant phrase, of course, to use. But also we've we've seen so much of the inventiveness of Ukrainians. Germany has a lot to learn in terms of digitalization, for example, from Ukrainians. How do we get Ukrainians this chance to become that frontier state of our future?
2: Maybe I will use this quote, which was several times repeated even in this conversation that Ukrainians are fighting not just for their own future, but for the future of the democracy in the world. Uh, Because only the spread of freedom makes our world safer. And I will return to the point that when large scale invasion started, the civilized world told, let's help Ukraine not to fail. And Ukraine obtained the first serious weapons to be able to defend itself. And first serious sanctions against Russia were introduced into the force. But it's time to change this narrative. We have to change it to the narrative, let's help Ukraine to win. It's a significant difference between let's help Ukraine not to fail and let's help Ukraine to win fast. And I think this is a reason why leaders of the countries don't communicated uh, why success of Ukraine is so important to their own population, because they're still mentally not on this uh, stage.
0: Right, Jeff, and to take that as a non-extreme position, this is the only reasonable position to take, isn't it?
4: Well, it is to this group. It is is to me. Um, uh, Karl Schwarzenberg, the former Czech foreign minister, longtime friend of Havel, said to me once, you can't have democracy without convinced, persuaded Democrats, and that is one reason why I think your initiative and project and enterprise pushing the idea of neo-idealism is so, so important. The education, the creation, the formation, and the spread of networks. Second, I would say to, to what you just said, Alexandra, is um, I agree, sadly, our Western politicians have not yet fully convincingly explained to their voters, to our citizens, why Ukraine matters. And to me, it is ultimately about the kind of world we actually want to live in. And by default, those who don't support Ukraine are saying or suggesting or making implicitly clear that they're okay with a world that is divided into spheres of influence, where the Iranian regime has its piece of the pie, and the Chinese theirs, and Putin his, and so on and so forth, and sorry you all, and sorry for all the frozen conflicts, but we're going to wall ourselves off and hope for the best in our own societies. That's not the kind of world I want to live in.
1: It's also a world that necessar- doesn't necessarily, I think, um, even satisfy economic interests either. I mean, the reality is, is that we do have... An interconnected world. Um, and there is a choice, I think, uh, to be made in all of this. Do we um, increase uh, ties between liberal democracies to sort of help our, each other through that moment, or do we continue to rely on the authoritarian Chinese for critical materials and the Russians for gas and all of this other sort of stuff?
3: You also offered earlier at least a little um, sliver of light there. You asked, you know, do we need new architecture? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, many just a few years ago we would have said no because we would all have been too cautious and uh, upset the boat and surely not. It, it does feel like we could do mm-hmm. with... Something, bearing in mind the um, destabilization and eroding away of the existing uh, the existing groupings, uh, be that G seven, be it the OSCE, um, uh, and of course the UN. And so, yeah, we have them to an extent, in, in the five eyes, perhaps, there's a, sort of a D10 isn't there, there's a, a coalition of a willing, however mellifluous that is so it's kind of there, but it, these things are not institutionalised, unbelievably they, they, the opposition can do it, there's a bricks. but the point is is it, it, I, 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 most people say I remember people saying this about the Minsk group of Grad in Karabakh, Say we don't need new architecture even though it has sort of failed for 30 years and look what's happened, so it, uh, yes, it's but then when this goes to this goes to, you know, radical, more than reasonable strategies. And, but, and it goes back to your point just now that, that we are being reasonable. It, but I, I feel like when we're saying it, we're being radical, but we are being reasonable. And, it, and, and so making that case to the unconverted, because you can preach to the converted quite easily, but proselytizing, as we would be told we would be doing, to the unconverted is, 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 seems to be a challenge here.
2: Human rights and peace inextricably linked... And these words not just sounds good, these words have practical meaning. the country which massively violates human rights it p- provides threats not just to their own citizens, but to the entire world. And Russia is a bright example because Russia for decades prosecutes their own civil society. Russia for decades commit horrible war crimes in Chechnya, Moldova, Georgia, Mali, Syria, Libya, other countries of the world. But well-developed democracies for too long close their eyes to this fact. They continue to shake Putin's hand, uh, build a gas pipeline, do business as usual. And this led to current situation when Russia decided that they can do whatever they want. So we must break the circle of impunity. I think the main lessons which Ukrainians provide to the world is that democracy, rule of law and human rights matters. Values matters. And we must defend them.
0: Absolutely right. And so how, to, how then to give... Expression to that through new institutions new cooperations and this this building of the links between democracies including Ukraine
4: indeed values Matter that's central to what we're talking about today and near and dear Um, Al Capone uh, Once an unlikely
0: (laughs) neo-idealist
4: once said uh, That you can get more in this world with a gun and a smile than you can with a smile alone. Uh, Values have to be defended, actually, through real hard, I'm sorry, I I quoted American gangster. You can delete that later. Um, But uh, defense and deterrence matter a lot. In the case of Ukraine, winning matters a lot. The time to arm Ukraine was 2014 and we failed and the time now to think with energy and imagination and diplomatic muscle of how to fast track Ukraine into an old institution, NATO is actually now, and to those who say it's too hard, it's too complicated, it's too untidy, I just remind all of us, When West Germany was admitted to NATO, it was hard, it was complicated, it was untidy. And then after all, Germany was divided. And after all, West Berlin was embedded in the so-called German Democratic Republic. And we did it, and it counted for a lot over the years. It was the bedrock, it was actually the foundation of Germany's peaceful democratic unification. So as we think about new institutions, Let's make sure that we put real lifeblood into the old ones. As we think about values, let's keep in mind that values have to be defended by hard power.
0: Thank you so much for that reminder, Jeff. And indeed, bringing West Germany in was hard. It was difficult. It was untidy. It was worth it. And it is now Germany who is standing as one of the main obstacles to Ukraine's NATO membership.
1: Thank you so much to Alexandra Matvichuk, Jeff Gedman, and James Nixie for, among other insights you heard there, for reminding us that liberal democracy's task has not always been an easy one. And Ben, as you alluded to right at the end of that discussion, there is another example of Germany's often selective memory culture. We've forgotten how hard NATO membership actually was for us in the beginning. And now, as you've said, the chancellery in particular is putting roadblocks on it for Ukraine. What's the task here? for liberal Democrats in Germany and in Europe to think about uh, with that one in mind.
0: Well, Aaron, it's precisely the task we set ourselves to in Prague and Berlin in October, which was to come up with a strategic approach to securing the future of liberal democracy and making that future worthwhile for people in free societies. And that's where I think the current German leadership have got that badly wrong. They've taken an unstrategic decision based on a miscalculation of interest. And trying to show that is one step. But in a big role in writing that and getting it on the right track is the, uh, the role that allies play. And that's where we're turning to next on Berlin Side Out is to looking at Germany's relationships with its key allies, where those have gone wrong, but also how to set them on a better track and what successes from the past to be able to build from. And there are successes there. There to, to draw on. So we look forward to discussing that and more with you on Berlin Side Out in the rest of this first season. Absolutely. We're looking forward to it. Uh,
1: so we're pivoting the season a bit, listeners, uh, to discuss in various chapters uh, key relationships that Germany has with its allies. So stay tuned for that, as Ben just said. That's all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. Thank you again to our team at Degapé and producer Hendrik Vana. Remember to check out our guests and background publications in the show notes. Join us over for the next weeks as we discuss those relationships with countries and regions. Until then, Auf Wiedersehen. Tschüss. And one more time, Ben.
0: Na